Welcome to Healing the Spirit, a space where we awaken our creativity, deepen our connections, and remember who we are through the lens of astrology, archetypes, and art making. I'm your host, Jonathan Coe. In today's episode, my guest in conversation is Nick Kepley. If you are on Instagram and you're into tarot, then chances are you've come across Nick's brilliant posts through their account, In Search of Tarot, which was formerly Man of the Cards. As you'll get to hear in this episode, Nick has a way of opening up portals with powerful inquiries and expansive invitations. For a while, I've had Nick on my list of dream guests for this podcast because I just love everything that Nick wrote and I've really benefited from um, questioning some of these ideas myself. And so when Nick reached out to me with a gracious invitation to be on their podcast, I took it as a sign and we ended up recording two conversations within the same week. One um, is where Nick interviewed me for their podcast, and the other is this one. Let's start by um, me reading you Nick's bio. Nick Kepley is a white, queer, non-binary tarot anarchist who believes in the power of words and their complete inability to describe reality. Since 2011, Nick has been working as a tarot facilitator, utilizing the cards as a reflective tool and witnessing the conversations that take place between clients and their deeper knowing. In addition to this work, Nick is also the co-creator of the In Search of Tarot guided journal collection, the founder of the Searcher Symposium for Tarot Education, and the host of the In Search of Tarot podcast. They're currently writing a book that imagines a new kind of mythopoetics for healing and reclaiming marginal identity. You can learn more about Nick by visiting manofthecards.com or by following them on Instagram at InSearchOfTarot. To me, this conversation felt very organic, and like all good conversations, they took many different twists and turns, and I just love the fact that we're releasing this episode as we're coming out of the full moon in Libra in 2022. Because to me, some of the most important themes around this conversation constellate um, around this idea of searching for some sort of balance and what we can learn in our quest of the equilibrium. We discuss the idea of finding the balance between, on the one hand, deconstructing, unpacking the ways we perhaps subconsciously mirror oppressive systems within our spiritual practices, and on the other hand, building a genuine, heart-led, personal and public practice that feels beautiful, authentic, and regenerative. We also discussed Nick's relationship with the concept of archetypes and how their experience listening to the wisdom of the margin has made them question the validity of archetypes as a concept, how perhaps the very idea of archetypes itself perpetuate the superiority narrative around um, what belongs to the center 
right? And what gets pushed out to the margin, which leads to a lack of inclusivity. What Nick shared around this topic was honestly an invitation that for me continued to reverberate in my system for some time after this conversation. It felt like a really powerful, important question to kind of be grappling with, especially as this podcast revolve around the idea of exploring archetypes. Finally, towards the end, Nick shared some very moving thoughts about what it means to hold the identity of a white practitioner, to be embodying this orientation towards searching without appropriation, without extraction. So stay tuned for that very special moment in our conversation. All right, let's get into my conversation with Nick Kepley. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited because I feel like I've been following your journey from a distance on Instagram. And it, I really appreciate the invitation that you kind of brought us into to questioning tarot, to questioning language, questioning our relationships with archetypes. And and I think, you know, the, the thing about the spiritual industry, right, or world, or mm-hmm. or just a group of people thinking about spirituality in general, is that it's easy for us to start adopting each other's languages and frameworks. And mm. and what I find exciting about your work is that you're inviting us to both take a step back and also kind of lean in a little bit further. And so that um that kind of push and pull between micro and macro is something that I find very, very exciting. So I'm excited to kind of dive deeper with you today. Mm, thank you. I'm, that means a lot, you know, to hear. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Um, so I like to start with asking folks um, who they feel, sense, or know themselves to be in the present moment. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I think that as I was considering this question, I was sort of feeling like I wanted to be very careful about knowing myself to be anything, mm-hmm. um, which came up recently in a conversation with my podcast co-host, Angie Miller, and she was talking about a teacher that she had heard um, say something along the lines of, when you get to a place where you think you're finished, you're right back at the start, you know? Yes. And at the time, that also hit me as such a world fool threshold. Um, and I think that as we all do, I guess, there definitely have been things and times when I have foolishly thought that, uh, which is also interesting to think of that as being a foolish thought, you know, world fool. Um, and now I'm honestly, thanks to conversations with people like you um, that I've been having lately, I'm actually realizing how much further there is to go. You know, I'm realizing I'm, I'm finding all of these doors kind of cracking that I didn't even know existed. Um, mm. and it's very humbling, you know, and it's, it's wonderful. It's very humbling. Um, I, 
I'm definitely a searcher, you know, hence the name of sort of everything I've done um, mm -hmm. in search of tarot. I definitely am a searcher. And so sometimes I find myself, um, you know, almost having anxiety around the fact that I'll never be able to know and understand everything um, yeah. and never be able to read every book that's ever been written. And, you know, um, but that's definitely something that uh, drives my life is a desire to keep discovering and keep opening up. So, yeah, I think I'm in a place now where a lot of the work I've been doing um, that you mentioned, you know, a lot of the sort of deconstructive kind of work now I feel like I'm ready to kind of circle back and spiral back and start again at the beginning. Um, mm. it, it feels like I've peeled back a layer of an onion and now I'm just starting fresh, you know, in a new place. Um, and maybe feeling ready to re, -ex re -get acquaint myself, I guess is the way I should say it, reacquaint myself with some of the things that I've been kind of critical of um mm. from a new lens and from a new angle yeah you know i i heard once um kind of the sentiment from someone who also did a lot of deconstructing work mm. around um how at some point she realized that wasn't really the crux of the work mm. that the deconstructing was what was necessary to get to the heart of the work and and i'm curious if you feel like that heart of the work is becoming more becoming clearer to you yes i i think what i really want to say about my work is that the reason behind it is a real desire to not limit anyone from connecting with the tarot Mm. Um, that really is what drives it. And I think I worry sometimes that people might think that I just kind of enjoy a hot take. <laughs> no. Um, but it, and, and, you know, and yes, sometimes that is kind of the way I present the ideas, but it really honestly is stemming from a place of, um, I just, you know, as I kind of release these thoughts into the world, I hear from so many people uh, that say things like, you know, thank you so much for saying this because I've never felt like I had a place, you know, mm. in this community or I've yes. never felt like I resonated with these, you know, archetypes or these concepts that get presented. And I'm so glad that someone is sort of saying that maybe, you know, is questioning them. Um, and that is what has kept me going. You know, it's not been just kind of me enjoying like picking at the tarot. It's, it's really been wow, there are people out there that really need this, you know? And yeah. I mean, really shouldn't the tarot be for the most marginalized among us? I mean, that's that's who all of us in the spiritual community are sort of saying that we want to be most of service to, you know? And so if those marginalized people are sort of crying out that they need another way, then I think we need to pay attention to that, you know? But a word that has really come into play for me in my practice has been inconvenient, um, and I, in my Instagram bio, I actually say my gender is inconvenient, um, because it is inconvenient for the, the masses or for the majority or for the, you know, system in power. Like it's inconvenient to examine the language you're using. It's inconvenient to rewrite the copy on your website. It's inconvenient to rethink your, um, you know, your dress code, like yeah. these are inconvenient things, but they, but it's the truth, you know, it's, mm. it's the truth. Um, so 
It's also inconvenient to examine a lot of the archetypes in the tarot and the way they've been discussed and who's been discussing them, you know, and the, the history behind who has created them. Um, but it just has felt really important. And in 2022, being a lover's year, um, I really kind of wanted, I came into this year with a real desire to shift my thinking from deconstructive into generative. You mm -hmm. know, I really, I wanted to be creating. I wanted to be not just tearing down, but, but actually offering solutions because I think it's easier to critique than it is to, you know, create. Um, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And so that was very important to me, but I, I do want to share that, um, in my own kind of full-time work, uh, which is teaching dance and, and ballet. Ballet is a very, very, um, heteronormative, very tightly binary, you know, world. Um, I've realized, you know, the, in the company I work for, which is very extremely white run, um, and dominated, there's a culture of, you know, if you raise an issue, then you better have a suggestion for what to do instead, or else mm -hmm. no one's going to listen to you, you yes. know? And that is, I think, a very white supremacist mindset. Um, and so it's actually made me kind of rethink the pressure that I place on myself to have an answer mm -hmm. um, and where that comes from. And so now I'm kind of thinking, you know, okay, what does it mean to, what does it mean to be more imaginative and to create new worlds and create, you know, alternatives without feeling like I have to have the answer, Yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. As you're speaking, it makes me think of this idea of the city, right? And how mm. cities are um, built upon kind of this efficient mechanism and thinking about, you know, the wild road, right? Or the, the road that wants to be paved that are maybe not necessarily designed and how that is kind of an inconvenience, you know, to the efficiency of the city. But but some of the most meaningful things that we come to in life or that we kind of discovered and built relationships with are maybe things that we never really planned for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear more about how you came to this point and about how you found tarot because you had mentioned dance being a huge part of your life. And I imagine, you know, the little I know about the dance world is that it's extremely rigorous and that you must have been involved since a very young age. And how did tarot find its way into your life? And, you know, I, I want you to kind of start maybe with your sun, moon rising, just to, to give a, um, a map of yeah. who you are. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a Libra sun, uh, Leo rising, Aquarius moon. The Leo rising, there is something that feels very destined to me in that, the way I sort of at least understand Leo and, and the way I connect with it. Um, yeah. I've always been someone that likes to lead. You know, I've always been um, wanting to, to create a project and, and kind of spearheading multiple projects. And, um, and also, I think 
really coming from a place of deep heartedness, which I think is, is a very Leo trait, you know, to mm. myself. I also love, I love beauty. I love a good selfie. I love <laughs> those things as well, you know, so right. all of those qualities of Leo, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Dance is definitely something I started very young. I was, you know, four years old when I entered the dance world, and it was all I ever wanted to do. I was, you know, completely obsessed with it from, you know, feels like birth. Um, and it definitely felt like destiny, you know, and something that I just had to chase after. Um, but I also was always a very, very um, introverted kind of inner world child. Um, I'm an only child, um, you know, which means I always think it means your imagination kind of gets to bloom a little bit extra because you're just constantly playing by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually kind of wanted to be a monk at one point, um, in my youth, I was, I was very, very interested in religion. Um, and yeah. And then tarot came in to play um, when I, first of all, when I was uh, performing on Broadway, which is a very rigorous and very repetitive schedule, eight shows a week, you know, forever. And yeah. so I was looking for something else to occupy my time. And there was a place in New York called the Open Center, which just offered various, you know, spiritual courses and, and workshops and things. And there was a tarot class and I just, I was like, that would be interesting, you know, and um, was definitely expecting it to be more kind of mystical and sort of cliche, what we think of like in, in American pop culture with tarot. And it ended up being very, very historical, you know, very symbology driven. It was Robert in place actually who taught it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was surprised how free it was and how much it was about storytelling is how he really presented it. Um, but of anything in my life, that has been the only thing that my mom has ever taken a real issue with. You know, she was fine that I was gay, fine, mm. fine that I was dancing, you know, but did not like that I was interested in tarot. And at the time I was in an, an abusive relationship and she was of the opinion that perhaps it was that the, the influence of that person that was kind of making me do this sort of evil thing, you know? Um, so I put it away for a while and then, and then when I hit my Saturn return, I went through a major, major, as so many people do, you know, a major reckoning with my childhood wounds from my father and was really, um, at a place where I felt ready to go through whatever it took to heal some of those wounds, you know, and really go through the, the dark night of the soul. Um, and I got very into meditation and I got very into, uh, Jungian psychology and read, King Warrior Magician Lover, read Iron John, read a lot of the masculine mythopoetic texts um, mm. that were given to me by um, a, f a family member. And some of the suggestions in those psychologies is that you find archetypes to meditate on um, to sort of enliven those pieces of your persona. Um, and I was lowest, there's a test you can take i was lowest in the king archetype um and so i was looking for images of kings and i was like oh my gosh the tarot you know that's a perfect place for those images mm -hmm. so that put me back into the tarot world and then this time i i just never stopped i ended up you know kind of tossing aside all the jungian stuff and just keeping going with the tarot um yeah. and yeah and and haven't stopped since and it, it really has changed my life mm. thank you for sharing that yeah it reminds me that I think the first post that I read from you 
probably ever was the one that you wrote um, about archetypes and about gender in on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I think it was posted. I was trying to look for it and I was trying to pinpoint the exact post. And I think this might be it. This is from November 20th, 2020. And do you mind if I read some of the takeaways that you shared here? No, sure. Um, so here are some that really stuck out to me. Archetypes are powerful and important for understanding where we came from and how we've evolved. Many of us come to tarot work in part because of the archetypes. While working with Jungian archetypes of masculine and feminine has led to healing for some, these concepts are ultimately outdated and their strict categorization and division has felt harmful to many. In America, we live in a society where concepts of masculinity and femininity and the use of gender pronouns are built into our system. Tarot also exists within the system, so it must find a way to work within it or risk losing relevance. I'm curious to hear, especially knowing that the start of your journey was around, you know, kind of this reflection um, that perhaps there is a part of you that you need to, or you were advised by this test, right, to kind of explore or build deeper relationships with. I'm curious how your relationship with archetypes, with... Um, gender and with even you know masculine feminine has shifted since since that point where you um took that quiz and then since november 20th 2020 yeah well it's funny to think back over my journey i mean i have to name a fade minin as being the reason that i now think so differently about gender um yeah. i mean the my greatest teacher in that and and just a prophet honestly i think i mean just incredible you know and um when i i if i go back and listen to the archival first episodes of my podcast i was talking about gender in a way i absolutely wouldn't would just cringe at now i mean i was i was regurgitating all the things you know all the stereotypes all the clichés that we because i was that was what i you know learned tarot through was that mm -hmm. lens you know of of emperor dad you know empress mom yeah. um all of that you know and, and also the sort of fire masculine you know water feminine all of those ideas um but you know what i hear in what you read is something that i actually now think of a little differently, I guess, but it's interesting to hear it reflected back is that paradox of the tarot needing to hold space for anyone and everyone mm. that comes to it, which is a Lindsay Mack teaching, um, but also needing to, and, and because of that, needing to speak to the system that does exist, you know, and the need to kind of, um, you know, admit to oneself that this is, this is how we live now, you know, and, and yes, we are trying to dream and imagine more. And we know that there is more, but this is how the world does function. And a lot, not only a lot of intellectual kind of things work in that way, but also a lot of just practical things are set up in that way. And so we really do have to kind of exist within it while also, fighting it like so many other things that the you know we're kind of all grappling with right now but um yeah i mean i i think it has and it has really made me 
you know, question archetype, um, as, mm. as we've talked about before, it's made me question, um, the validity of archetype, the need for archetype. And, and I mean, I guess what I really question is so many people that I listen to when they speak about archetype, they talk about it in a very expansive way, you know, and they say, find yourself in it and it can be whoever you want and it, mm. and it can, you know, you can change it, you can morph it, but it almost is gaslighting in a way to kind of act as if it isn't presented in such a simplistic way most mm. of the time, you know, yeah. and it's, and it almost hurts in a way to say, okay, you can do whatever you want in private, but the world is just going to keep this story going, mm -hmm. you know, and you should just find a way to just make that work for yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. I feel you. I think especially the conversation around masculine, feminine, or even male, female, it's so interesting. And I, I, I do wonder too, if that subtext, right, around the strictness of it has to do with the human-centered narrative that we've mm -hmm. kind of perpetuated, right? Mm -hmm. And how that um, becomes, in a way, a problem, I guess, because because when we look at nature and when we expand our our perspective into other beings, other realms, you can't even see that the way we perceive and conceive of masculine, feminine is is valid or is rooted in nature. Right. And and a lot of it is conditioning. A lot of it is our societal forces at large shaping how power is to be directed. Right. Yeah. Right. That's I mean, that is something that I've been thinking about a lot with it lately is um I think that it's very natural and normal for humans to want to or to, to sort of only be able to reflect themselves in the system that they live in. So for instance, you know, I've, I've kind of, I'm working on a book right now and I've fallen down a, a sci-fi rabbit hole, um, mm -hmm. sort of research wise and just kind of, I'm reading a lot of sci-fi and I was listening to an interview with NK Jemison. Um, and they were saying that when you create, um, when you're world building for sci-fi, you have to think about the fact that your audience is, only knows the world that it lives in, you yeah. know? So you're, you're building a world based on, or you're sort of thinking to yourself, okay, what if I take the world I'm in now and I tweak it and change it, but it's sort of, it's sort of still based in the, some of the same logic of this world or else people just really will not have anything to relate it to, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's how I think about archetype. I think it makes total sense that we kind of don't know how else to empathize with a tree, you know, for instance, without kind of anthropomorphizing it and being like, yeah. oh, the tree feels this way or the tree, you know, whatever. But the deeper truth that I always think about is we, I mean, the truth is we don't know how the tree feels. You know, mm -hmm. I, I do believe that there's certainly more going on there than we know. I mean, and science is proving that as we speak, you know, that there's connections and communication occurring between, you know, these things that we have in, at least in white Western mind, we've tended to think of as being, you know, not alive. And now we're yeah. learning that they are very alive, but I think they're perhaps alive in ways that we can't even th comprehend, you know? Yes. And so all we can do is tell it in the best way we can. And I think that's wonderful and beautiful and powerful. But I think that along the way, we, we've, so many of us 
forget that it's just a pointing to, it's not an actuality. Mm -hmm. And we start to really think that Aphrodite looks how we imagine Aphrodite to look, you know, or that Saturn is actually daddy, you know, Mm -hmm. or what, you know, like that, that these, all these languages that we're trying to just point at something, we actually think it's real. And then we actually think that the way we think about it is the right way. And, um, and people that think about it differently is the wrong way. And the truth is, it's just us all just trying to point at something. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I I really love where you're going with this because there was something I mentioned before we started recording that I really loved from reading your bio, which is you wrote, I believe in the power of words and their complete inability to describe reality, which just really <laughs> made me, <laughs> yeah. made me chuckle. And then it, it reminded me of another post that you wrote that really resonated with me, which was that none of our interpretations have to match. And then you wrote, and why would they? Our lives don't match. Our experiences vary. Our identities weave and flow and diverge and converge and intersect and unwind and morph and coalesce. Just because you see something written over and over again doesn't make it true, and it certainly doesn't make it unchallengeable. So to that end, I, I do want to talk about tarot as a language and and maybe some of the nuances that that you have recently been unpacking around that, but but I also um, want to kind of throw into the mix, you know, this this question of if you come to any sort of um, realizations, aha moments around new ways to talk about archetypes or or new ways to work with archetypes in the collective. Yeah, well. Lacan, who I came into contact with through Sophie Strand, actually, um, Jacques Lacan, who's a French philosopher, um, has this, you know, had this idea about the real, the definition of the real. It was the real, the imaginary, and the symbolic, I believe, were the three sort of categories. And mm-hmm. he was pointing out that in the moment that we language something, it becomes not real anymore. You know, that the real is, we can't speak what is real and true and, and language is symbolic and, and interpretive, you know? Mm. And so I have been, you know, writing this book, I'm working on this book right now, talking about the margin and what it is to be marginal um, and sort of trying to just offer an interpretation of the margin that is a reclaiming of that. And it's not to say, I'm not trying to say that being marginalized is never hurtful or injurious. I mean, it is all those things, you know, but we, we, we already know that part. I mean, we're, we're showing that story over and over and I'll speak now directly to, you know, sort of queer people and the queer experience. Like, you know, we, we, we understand the marginalization that occurs, you know, and we experience it. So I'm trying to offer a a way to look at the margin that is actually um, empowering, you know, what does it mean? I mean, and, and this came from, a crazy, amazing relationship that I've built with Lake Michigan here in Milwaukee. Um, uh, thanks to Maria Menace's uh, Liberation Co-Creation Group, which I'm part of right now, we were asked to dedicate ourselves to a spirit or a deity or a place. And I've had some trouble kind of landing here in Milwaukee since I moved here. And I was like, you know, I think I need to, I think I need to dedicate myself to this place and help myself kind of land here. And yeah. so I dedicated myself to Lake Michigan and began having daily talks with the lake as I drove across the bridge on my way to work. And one day I asked the lake, 
how can I find or where can we find a queer myth of poetics that is not linked to heteronormativity, you know, that mm-hmm. is not in comparison to heteronormativity because in so many myths that I, I have found there, yes, there are definitely queer, you know, components to it, but it always feels like it's relational in some way to what is sort of quote unquote normal or natural, you know, the yeah. heterosexual relationship, because so many times it's about an origin story. So of course it's about, you know, a man and a woman having sex and having a baby, you know? Yeah. And so I, I'm like, is it possible to have my own queer mythology that has nothing to do with that? And the lake said something so powerful. The lake said, you won't find your myth in this lake or you won't. Yeah. You won't find your myth in this lake. Your myth is this lake. And when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, the margin is what holds everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the margin is not a veering off or a pushing out. The margin is perhaps the starting point, like is actually the beginning, is actually the container. Yeah. Um, and that just felt incredibly empowering to me personally. And, um, and so that's been kind of the way I've been thinking. But but to tie it back to what we were talking about, I have been thinking about the fact that when we are speaking ultimate truth, you know, unlanguageable truth, which in my you know viewpoint can only be found at the margin, you know, that 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 real truth only exists there, then it becomes impossible for us to speak that. And many of us have tried, you know, many of us marginalized people who still maintain a connection to the margin have tried over the years to speak it, but it gets washed over or disregarded because the center mythologists, which is kind of, you know, this character I'm developing right now, the center mythologists have told a much simplified, much more easily digestible story because they're willing to use words. They're willing, mm-hmm. they're willing to use whatever words it takes to get their message across. They are, they're shortchanging truth for, you know, legibility. Mm. And so our truth and our sort of um, more marginal, maybe therefore more meandering, more spiralic, more, you know, flowing language that we're trying to sort of point at and not actually form with becomes less accessible to, you know, the people and they kind of can't hear us you know, and we don't even quite know ourselves. And we honor that, you know, we, we know that we, we honor the difference at the margin, but, but it, it's just a little bit less easy to latch onto and therefore has not been, um, has not become the major viewpoint, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm letting that sit with me because it feels very true. And I, I, I feel in myself a, a certain sadness, you know, mm-hmm. hearing that and and feeling into the truth of that and thinking about how perhaps that's really where the medicine is, right? Mm-hmm. Like the medicine is in in being at the outskirt and you know, it's interesting because because I I guess it makes me think about how we're kind of at a moment of apocalypse for a lot of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think with with the past two years and the uh, um, pandemonium and, <laughs> and, and everything that's going on, it almost feels like there is a true cracking at the core, right? Mm-hmm. At the center, the, 
the um, mainstream narrative that you are talking about is cracking, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, as more and more people are falling off that center, and maybe not even knowing where the center is anymore, could it be that that the meandering path, you know, of the mystics, the seekers become um, like maybe it's always meant to be at the margins so that it can it can help people who are falling off from the center. I, I don't collects. know where I'm going. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. I mean, it's yeah, it's catching catching what's falling apart. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I would love to offer. I mean, because I. I appreciate you telling me, you know, that that makes you feel a certain sadness because it's really not what I'm trying to do as mm -hmm. I talk about these things. It's actually very important to me, like I said, to steer away from those sort of more sad narratives because those are the pieces of the marginal experience that the majority does decide are digestible, yeah. you know? Right. I mean, I'll be very honest with you. I... I absolutely, of course, of course, think that telling the AIDS crisis story is very, very important. I mean, of mm. course it is. But I feel like we see that so, so much, you know, and there are these certain narratives that we see so much in the queer experience that I just, I hunger for the happiness. I hunger for the the normalcy of life, you know, just mm. the, just the, you know, just that we're just people and that we can, it doesn't have to be about, um, you know, sort of homophobia, and it doesn't have to be about AIDS. Um, yeah. And uh, so one thing I would love to offer to you as a way to to use this idea in an empowering way, which is what I how I've been using it, and what I'm trying to, to do with it is, you know, say, for instance, you're in a meeting, where you're the only queer person in the room. And through the conversation that's occurring, you start to realize that there's just certain ways of looking at what's happening in the system at play that these people are just not going to be able to acknowledge, you know, mm -hmm. or, or not, or not even aware of. Yeah. And instead of kind of being defeated, there's a way I, I have found that I can think to myself, they just don't have the connection to the margin. You mm -hmm. know, they, they, they just don't have this connection and yeah. I can in a way almost feel a little pity for them in that, you know, or a little, mm -hmm. um, softness to them. And I can yeah. say, let me soften and let me connect. Let me reconnect to my marginal identity, to the power of the margin. And let me let the power of the margin speak through me right now. You mm -hmm. know, let me, let it, um, give me something that I am thankful for and that I don't have any other way. I mean, it reminds me of my fiance who all the time talks about how thankful he is that he's gay because otherwise he would have kept living the same narrative that his family had been living for, you know, a long time. Yeah. And, and that's the power I'm talking about. That is the power of the margin that it, that it really does open up our lives and, and our experience to so many things that we would not have gotten, you know, any other way. It's almost like, taking the pill for the matrix, you know, and, mm -hmm. and realizing like, Oh my gosh, there's, there's so much more, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. so that's kind of, that's what I hope it can, can provide is a, just an alternative, a way of feeling proud and a way of feeling empowered by the margin. Because like I said, the, 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 the difficulty of the margin is definitely there and is not going to go away, but here's mm -hmm. an, here's another way that it could be flipped on its head and actually be, you know, empowering. Yeah, I, I love that. Thank you for offering that, Nick. And mm -hmm. I, I, it also makes me think of how the margin itself has 
the power to be quite oracular in a way, mm-hmm. and it's almost like that power comes from being the margin. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it it makes me think of how around I would say maybe in two thousand ten, two thousand nine, the singer Lord was like the sensation. You know,、mm-hmm. and there is a sense that she was kind of coming from out of nowhere. You know, she she's you know from New Zealand, and nobody knows who this person is. And this music is so fresh, and it's such a such an interesting take on、mm-hmm. you know music and like maybe the youth culture in terms of the lyrics. And then, and then I I noticed that there is a way in which. You know, something that's at the margin, at least in the music industry, seems to then start to get absorbed into the center. You know,、mm-hmm. and then the trend, or even the sentiment, or the way of expressing, no longer becomes potent. You know,、yeah. and, and and there's a way in which having a connection to the margin means that you're also in some ways unpinable. As the center also evolves and maybe starts to take with it elements from what was previous previously the margin, yes,、um, you kind of start to, you know, push out and see how else we can、um, widen this narrative, right? Yes, yes, I think that that is exactly it, and this is why, you know, to tie it back to archetype, this is why I've been so become so wary of archetype, you know, because.、Mm. It feels like a reduction, you know. It、yeah. feels like an essentialization. It feels like a soundbite, you know, a keyword,、um, you know. And I and I understand, you know, that it that it can be more. I certainly understand that. But I guess when I follow that thinking fully to the to its conclusion, to me, it sort of explodes the idea of archetype. In and of itself, you know that that、mm-hmm. if you really push the push the idea of archetype, you know, to be as expansive as it kind of needs to be, it seems like it just becomes not, you know, not a thing anymore.、Um, yeah. You know, and and I guess it makes me question, like, why why do we need it? What is it giving to us? I mean, and I, I've heard people say, you know, I've ta- went to bring it back to tarot. You know,、um, when I did the tarot as a language, or is not a language, is the world post.、Um, mm-hmm. One comment I got back was someone saying, "Well, you know, we it, we need places to start. You know, we like it's just giving us keywords, and then we can kind of expand from there." But、yeah. the, my questioning with that is like, okay, you know, I hear that, but these keywords that. Are most often used, you know, because the fact is the Rider Waite Smith deck is, you know, definitely the most popular and is the system that most people enter tarot through. Is is、mm-hmm. the sort of Waite,、um, you know, Golden Dawn Hermeticism lineage.、Um, yeah. So those keywords, those were made by certain people in certain time periods with certain, you know, viewpoints, and. That is what you're saying we should use as our starting point, you know.、Mm. And I, I just question that, you know. I question the the usefulness of that. And I,、mm. and I guess, you know, I mean, I guess it's up to every person、um, to kind of push because I can see how, like, for a long time, I used to say that what tarot gave me, and I still feel this way to a certain extent, but I used to say that it, it gave me. A starting place, and it gave me something to push against. So the archetypes that traditionally get talked about, with you know, emperor, empress, like I was saying earlier, king, queen, you know, they gave me just 
a place to kind of push up against and to examine gender through by pushing up against them, you know? Um, but, but now I'm kind of like, but you know, do we even need that? I mean, how, how helpful or harmful is that? You know, like we don't really need to be reinforcing a system that we already see like Mm -hmm. on the daily, you know, Mm -hmm. like we actually need to be, you know, offering alternatives, you know? And, and so when you say like, you know, well, the keywords give us a a place to start. I mean, yes, they do. But do we even want to start there? You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love this so much. I've been thinking about this a lot with regards to learning astrology because, Mm um, I recently completed a seven month mentoring program where I was the facilitator. Um, uh-huh. And it kind of makes me question everything about how I learn astrology mm-hmm. and about how we kind of, similar to tarot in astrology, we also learn these keywords, right? Which, yes, you know, we then kind of um, continually question, we continually um, build upon, we continually revise. But it's still within, you know, certain boxes, right? And and I've been wondering what would happen if you get a bunch of people who are excited about learning astrology and you allow them to, to let um, the spaciousness to, to allow this inner knowing to come through, you know? Yeah. So rather than learning that Mars is about vitality, for example, and receiving that keyword or that Venus is about beauty, what if you just sit with the name Venus and you sit with uh, the glyph and then see what begins to emerge, you know? And, and, and I think maybe that's more of a minimalist approach. And I can also see the maximalist approach, which is, you know, rather than people just learning the, um, the Golden Dawn associations for tarot, really learning the whole entire canon right 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 really learning maybe um the tarot de marseille or you know um yeah other traditions the toast tarot even like you know taking all of these different traditions and allowing them to to be dissonant from the very beginning to um see a larger picture of how different traditions, different people interact with the tarot. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. And and I, I do want to go further into this exploration that you've been having around tarot as a language and, and, and what you've been learning from that exploration. Yeah, well, another thing that, that my co-host taught me, Angie, um, or brought up recently is the fact that originally tarot was folk magic, you know, Mm -hmm. before it had been codified by, you know, these white people, um, it was, it was used more in a divinatory and and folk magic kind of way. And I always wish so badly that I could be a fly on the wall to hear the way people used tarot when it first was being used, you know, Mm -hmm. in a a way that wasn't just a game. I mean, it started as a card game. And when, when was that moment where it started to switch over? I'm sure it probably was much more playful, you know, that it was more, exploratory. I mean, before all these keywords had even been created, you know, how were people using it? And, you know, if we think about other folk magic, 
you know, traditions such as, you know, tea leaves, coffee grounds, bones, dice, you know, all the different, you know, things that have been used. I mean, you can divine with anything. And and by the way, I, I really loved what you said to me the other night about divination that has really stuck with me, and I thought was very mm-hmm. powerful. Um, but, uh, you know, so what seems to make the difference, at least in in the in the white western mind i think like sort of the overculture is the legitimacy quote unquote of someone systematizing you know someone saying this means this you know this yeah. card means this here are the keywords you know which which is historically kind of what occurred like mathers i, I believe mcgregor mathers you know was one of the earliest people to create a book that was specifically saying here's how to read the future with the tarot, you know, and sort of mm-hmm. providing these these keywords and these definitions. Mm-hmm. And it gave it this kind of legitimacy, you know, that that other, you know, valid, completely valid forms of folk magic, you know, we have we haven't given them that. And that's something that I've been exploring in my own practice lately is oracle cards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they are feeling a lot freer in my, it's, it's, it's giving me a way to, um, to truly approach every reading for myself or for others with a complete clean slate. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite decks is the uh, Prima Materia deck from Usi, which is still a system because it's based on the um, table of the elements. Mm -hmm. But what I like to do with it is I have the guidebook. It's gorgeous. It's beautifully written, you know, and I enjoy reading the descriptions. But what I actually find the most useful is to pull a card and then fall down a Google rabbit hole about that element. (laughs) you know about like the actual science behind the element and it's shocking how it will apply to what i'm examining i mean it's amazing Mm -hmm. and but it lets me be the one to uh fall down that rabbit hole you know and it lets me be the one to really do the the defining and the interpretation there's there's no there's nothing else on my mind when I pull those cards. Unlike, yeah. you know, as much as I would love to be able to use a Rider Waite Smith based tarot deck and have a card come up and and to be honest and say, I don't think anything about that. I mean, mm-hmm. I have to be honest, I was brought up in that system. I absolutely have some thoughts about three of swords that I cannot unsee, you know, <laughs> that I cannot forget. I mean, and yes. so even if I'm trying to be expansive with it, it's just kind of impossible. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so, but it's been interesting with that Oracle process because there's definitely a piece of me very res- that was very resistant to Oracle because I sort of, you know, had this fake idea in my head that somehow tarot was more legitimate, you know, that yeah. because it had been systematized, it it was more legitimate. And now, now I'm, I've basically just pushed my tarot decks aside and, mm-hmm. and I'm finding just so much freedom in, in Oracle. What I also was thinking is, um, like we were saying with science fiction and, and the fact that the reader always has this world in mind as they read about these other worlds, it's the mm-hmm. same with divination. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, we, we have these, we have this world in our mind. We don't need to be presented again with a codified version of this world. You know, we know it. So yeah. like, like when I read with these oracle cards, I, I am completely limited by mm-hmm. my own existence, you know, and completely limited by my own viewpoint and my own experience. So I am definitely bringing in, you know, systemic concepts, you know, but because someone else hasn't sort of layered their version of it or sort of cemented it into it for me, I am able to get just a little bit 
freer from it. You know, I'm able to just imagine a little bit further, you know, I'm able to maybe tie in bits and pieces in ways that no one else would, you know, and that's kind of what's nice about it from reader to reader. It's completely different because everyone has their own strands that they're bringing in. Um, So, yeah, so you're not kind of, you're not looking at it through this other filter of this, you know, Western esoteric viewpoint, you know. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot a little bit into the idea of masculinity. Okay. You recently decided to shed the identity of Man of the Cards, which was your business name, your Instagram handle for a while. And something you wrote really spoke to me, which was, when I stepped into my non-binary identity, I chose to keep the name Man of the Cards as a way to further trouble the binary and its meaning. But this week, something shifted in me. I can feel myself moving out of a space that centers on critique and into a space that centers more on generative imagination. Because of this, a name that rests in challenging others doesn't feel quite right anymore. When I look back at the past two years, it's kind of crazy how the phrase in search of tarot has morphed from a carefree title into a life-changing mantra. Um, I just really love that because it's, <laughs> it's such a sweet tale of something that is maybe more of a home has felt hidden or not accessible to you and maybe it was always obvious to the people around you that maybe that's what you you were doing so i'm not sure exactly what my question is but i kind of want to open that up to you to to explore this idea of what you've learned about masculinity and what you've learned from shedding that identity that maybe is kind of sticking a middle finger into yeah. you know, <laughs> the idea of what is masculine. Yeah. Well, you know, I think something I'm realizing in this conversation is that the Libra part of me definitely comes out in my desire to have a conversation with someone else. You know, I yeah. really, I, I, I do a lot of thinking on my own, but I really want someone, I want someone to push up against and I want, I want someone to show me a different way of thinking. You know, I want, I want to know what's wrong about what I'm thinking and I, and I want to know if I'm on the right track. You know, I, I just, I really kind of need to outsource my thinking process. And, you know, we both love Sophie Strand. Another thing I've learned from her is, um, the idea that, that ideas and thinking is relational, you know, Mm. and I, I really love that. I think that's so true. I think, you know, that's how we arrive at, at the marginal truth is, is together because it takes all of us trying to say, I mean, that's a great point. It takes all of us using, you know, fallible language to to even get close to what's true, you know? Um, but, uh, but the way that, um, the way that I, you know, in that caption you were reading, the way I was sort of saying, I kept this name to trouble the binary, you know, I kept it to create conversation. I mean, people definitely would ask, would ask me about it, would, you know, find, find it odd or challenging that I identify as non-binary, but have this, you know, very kind of binary name. Mm -hmm. And a part of me was totally fine with that. And, And a part of me felt like too, well, I mean, isn't that counter to the point that like, this word or this name doesn't really mean anything, you know, and and the fact that you're attaching a meaning to it, you know, isn't that sort of counter to the point. And actually a friend of mine told me one time that when she talked about me, she, even though I I use they and he pronouns, she was like, I really don't like to use he for you. I really, I really am only comfortable using they. And I was Mm -hmm. like, 
okay. I was like, well, that's kind of on you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of a... Uh, something that maybe you should think about, like, because mm-hmm. you're just attaching like a lot of meaning to that word. Um, but I want to also say that I hear the other side. I, I definitely want to acknowledge that I present in what the world views as masculine mm-hmm. and I am white and that there are a ton of privileges that come along with that, that that is very, very important for me to acknowledge, you know, and say. Um, but for me, it felt like, It felt like it's also been very important to me because of those things to be the loudest voice in the room questioning Mm. those things. And believe me that I am. I mean, people don't know me, but I am, I am the, I am the loudest voice in the room questioning those things, you know, and and I I do, I do really, I get into trouble about with that all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm always questioning it. So, um, but yeah, I guess along with that story, I was telling you about this lover's year and wanting to be more generative. Mm -hmm. It honestly came out of the blue. I mean, there was, it was not a long lead up. I was not really even thinking about changing my name. And then just all of a sudden I was like, you know, I think it's time. I think I'm, Mm. I think I'm done with this, um, this this name you know i think i'm done using this name to create discourse um and i'm ready to sink into this in search of tarot phrase which has just been at the heart of everything i've done you know i have a i have a zine series that i've called i mean every time i've put something new out i've just always been like i'm just going to call it in search of tarot because it's mm-hmm. i mean the I don't feel like I can say anything better. I, I, like I said at the beginning, I'm a searcher. Um, but why I brought up my joy of discourse is that I'm realizing that I don't sit super comfortably in just quiet internal questioning. You know, mm-hmm. that the way that I do search, the way that I know how to search is is in relationship to other people, is in conversation. And I yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but I think that it is interesting for me to maybe piece together or tie together the fact that I've now taken on this new name that is less based in like identity um, mm-hmm. than maybe Man of the Cards was. Mm-hmm. And think about what it means to embody the search. You know, what does it mean to embody searching both externally and internally and how can I maybe be a little bit more comfortable with an internal search, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. So one thing that's been on my mind a lot, you know, especially being someone who is, you know, doing both. I I feel like this is the one line of work where it's kind of impossible to not be doing your internal work while you're also doing your external work. I mean, maybe (laughs) some people have figured it out, but (laughs) for me, it's, it's near impossible. And I feel like my external work is always really guided by my internal work. And I'm, I'm curious to hear how for you, this connection between personal study, personal exploration, questioning, relate to teaching and mm-hmm. holding space for others in reading spaces and where is the line right between our personal practice and our um public practice or is there a line or should there be a line right right yeah i mean last year i took about half a year off from offering any kind of public readings mm-hmm. and that was because i had reached a point where what i was saying in, and what I was realizing in my own personal practice was not 
lining up. I couldn't make I couldn't find a way to make it line up with offering public readings anymore. I just I wasn't mm-hmm. sure I wasn't sure what my role was. I felt very troubled by the 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 reader client dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um I was very disturbed by my own implicit bias and mm-hmm. racism and you know I was I was just really not sure um, how to best handle myself in a reading setting anymore. Um, so I took half a year off and found a new way of working that feels like it works for me now. And, and mainly what it is, is really just, you know, I mean, people talk about this all the time, but it's really just opening into my own humanity and my own, um, you know, that, that it, that really the, the goal of the reading is, to connect the client to their, to their intuition and the acknowledgement that these cards are speaking for them and to them, you know? And so it isn't about, it isn't about my stories with the cards. It isn't about my, you know, personal anecdotes that I've journaled about in my tarot notebook, you know, how I've connected to the three of swords or whatever. It's about them. And, uh, and any, and I started to really get worried about, you know, my own keywords, you know, that I've Mm -hmm. come up with, like, getting in the way of, of what wants to come through for this person. Um, yeah. And it's been very interesting um, to see what's, what comes through now, you know, that I, that I do give so much power over to them, you know, mm. and, and it's really interesting to see how that unfolds. But um, as far as, you know, how much we should be sharing, I mean, that's, it goes along the same line of thought I was just having about, you know, so much of what I do share, it is a desire for someone to say something back. I mean, I love hearing from people. I love reading the comments. I do not, I mean, I should be careful how much I say this, but I am not afraid of a DM convo, you know, and and I actually (laughs) have, I've been blessed. I have had a couple of really big, I mean, you know, what do we mean when we say big name, but, you know, large following people in the tarot world that, I have gotten the, I've had the chance to have some very interesting dialogue with, um, Mm. that, that it seems as if some of the things I've been saying have challenged them, Mm. but they've been willing to like talk about it. And some of them have even been willing to kind of shift the way they work. And, and Mm. it's, it's been nice to have those dialogues. Um, so that's why I share, but I do think that there's something for me personally to look into around, when I share and I guess if I've completely internalized the thing yet mm-hmm. before I share, you yeah. know, and that, and yeah. that maybe, maybe there should be more of a space between not just having the thought and immediately sharing it, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, having the thought, sitting with it, letting it marinate and then coming to a place of, of sharing, you know, but, but yeah. I think community, I mean, I think we all hunger for community. I think we do. I mean, all of us are kind of, or I shouldn't say all of us, a lot of us are kind of nerdy oddballs who are, you know, like <laughs> looking for some friends, you know, and, totally. and we want to talk about it and we want community. And, you know, yeah. and the only way you can really find that is to put yourself out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Interesting, too, to think about how you have a podcast, right? And and how a podcast is, even though it's to a certain extent curated, I feel like generally for people who who end up you know, having their podcasts, it is a way to expand yourself into yes. um, different perspectives and how to hold space for others with others in a way that um, allows that diversity of opinion, of thought, and 
and for communal searching, right? Yes. Which I think is is so lacking in our culture because we we are taught in this academic system that glorifies the person who knows it all, right? The uh-huh. person who who read the most books and who never got anything wrong. And I, I'm curious if your exploration in tarot and in having conversations with people, how are they connected and how have they taught you about what's possible for us as a collective? Yeah, I mean, that is so true that that's what doing the podcast does for me. I mean, it's taught me so much. And I'm I'm so grateful to you and to everyone that has, you know, been generous enough to speak with me because it's, it's just taught me so much. But it's funny, too, uh, when you mentioned, like, you know, rewarding the person that gets it right. Um, I was so not that kid, (laughs) you know, like I, I was not interested in school. I, you know, made excellent grades in the, in the, uh, the classes that I was interested in and did Mm. horribly in the ones that I didn't because I never did my homework. I mean, I, I just, I just didn't care, you know, if I, if it didn't interest me, I didn't care. And, um, yeah, so I guess I've ended up living into that kid now, you know, that, that I, I just don't care about getting it right. I, but mm. I really do love to talk about it, you know, yes. and I love to, um, you know, search it, search it out. But, um, yeah, I mean, so many things. I mean, I'm trying to think back through guests and, and think about particular things. But, uh, you know, for instance, Charlie Claire Burgess, the creator of the Fifth Spirit Tarot, mm-hmm. they really, um, they really also were very pivotal in my non-binary uh, journey. Um, you know, I, I talked to them on the podcast around the time that I was first listening to Alok, and the way they present, they were actually the first person that said. Um, that they also use the tarot to like push against these binary concepts. And I'd never Mm -hmm. thought of it in that way at that time. Um, And that was very helpful. Um, You know, Sophie has taught me so much, um, you know, uh, and um, I'm trying to think about other particular people, but it, you know, it's been, it's amazing. I mean, I always step away with 10 new ideas, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, everyone has always been very willing to really go there. Um, and yeah, it is encouraging. It's encouraging to be like, oh yes, this is what dialogue can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think what what is really um, lighting up for me as you were speaking is this idea that that has been lost in our culture around how communal searching leads to knowledge uh-huh if you think about the spirit of what it means to build a university for example even in the western world and and the western colonial system um there is that idea of the discourse right of of having different points of view weaving a tapestry together of what knowledge is that I think is lost in our culture a lot of the times even you know and it's interesting to think about this kind of in this um post donald trump world right that and that's not i'm not using that term you know to imply that we are um free from the clutches of donald trump (laughs) rather (laughs) i'm using that term to to signify you know how someone like donald trump has has um 
dominated the airwaves for for four years in the United States of America, right? And and how, you know, I think cancel culture or even, you know, really needing to to get the facts right come from a sincere desire, and also at the same time, is speaking to our fear for for having messy conversations, for having um, messy lives. Like yeah. the, the reality is that I think as people who who not only exist at the margin, but maybe, um, you know, have accepted the role of, of being a channel for the margin, um, we know that shit's always really messy, right? Everything's always falling apart and coming together and building towards something new and, and that there's no such thing as as um, the clean um, draft, right? Like we're always constantly revising that rough draft in a way. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. I was kind of lost in that. Um, and I was thinking about the idea of searching. It's funny, I'm on my laptop right now, I'm looking at actually an image of, from my podcast you know, uh, graphic and mm -hmm. thinking about a way of searching that isn't about extracting, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a very, I mean, if there, if there is anything that it even means to be white, you know, which is something I think about now all the time. I mean, what, you know, what am I without, um, appropriation without, you know, extraction, mm -hmm. it would be that it would be a kind of searching that would allow me to discover things without needing to consume them. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's definitely something there, for, you know, for me and for all of us white people, I think to think about, you know, that, that why, why is my initial instinct that I need to understand, even understand it? Why do I even mm -hmm. think that I have some kind of right or, or need to like understand something from another culture? It's okay mm -hmm. if I don't understand it, you know, mm -hmm. but that feels, that does feel very threatening. You know, it does feel very um, or not maybe threatening. It's not the right word. It feels scary to me, or it feels anxiety filling to me. Like I shared at the beginning of the podcast to not understand everything, you know, or to not, uh, to discover that I'm not on like the same quote unquote wavelength as someone else, you know, feels yeah. like, Oh gosh, there's something wrong with me. But like, what if that's just how it is, you know, mm -hmm. what, it, what and, and how can it be, lovely and fascinating and enhancing life enhancing to just witness someone else and their knowing you know and and to just keep searching down the the path you know and just mm. kind of encountering you know and yeah. and it will change you of course it will it will broaden you and it will change you but you know maybe you don't have to become it you know mm. maybe it's okay to just see it you know and just to witness it you know yeah it makes me think of how, you know, the myth of the grail, right? Yeah. Percival was the anti-masculine figure in a way because eventually he reached the grail through asking the king what alethi, right? Which is right. such an... Um, it goes against our, you know, definition heteronormative cis white supremacist idea of what it means to be 
a man in America, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think um, I think there's a lot in that for a lot of white pra- white practitioners in our field. Honestly, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's mm-hmm. there's a real um, opening to you know why why do I need to take this on? Why do I need yeah. to call myself this or? you know, commodify this practice or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, but I, but to be honest with you, I mean, this is so vulnerable, but like, it's, it's hard because I don't know what's left sometimes. And that's mm-hmm. not, that's no one's problem, but that's for me to figure out. You know what I mean? I'm mm-hmm. not saying show me that answer, but we are who we are because of the lineage that we come from, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I did not choose to incarnate well, I guess, depending how you look at that, but I, I don't feel like I personally, you know, sort of chose this life, but here I am, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and what, um, and maybe I did, you know, maybe, maybe there's something for me to to think about there, but, um, you know, what do I, what's left if I'm not all those things, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and I will say that being queer, that is a marginal thing that I do connect to that does feel like I can really, sink my teeth into that, you know, like, um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, the specificity of that. And as I, as I, you know, have examined over the years, you know, appropriative things or, you know, racism and things like that, I've realized that getting specific, like limiting myself to what I feel like is truly mine actually does Mm -hmm. open a door because it, it, uh, it, 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 it makes me forces me to have to get more specific yeah. and, and just like all creative acts as an artist, sometimes having tighter constrict constraints actually makes you more creative, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So as we come to a close, I, I kind of want to ask you a question that I have never asked anyone on this podcast before. Okay. Um, <laughs> Which is, you know, the name of this podcast came to me while I was, um, let's say, communing with my Akashic field. And it's called Healing the Spirit, which I actually had um, a lot of very not happy feelings about. Because <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> but but I, I feel, you know, as I sit with that information, it feels to me like there's something to to unpack around this phrase, around the idea of healing, around the idea of spirit. And and in the spirit of complexity, of um, of letting, letting our search be something that may not lead us anywhere, I'm curious to hear what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, healing the spirit. And, you know, if you want to explore where are the constrictions and where are the expansions or the possibilities? Yeah. Healing the spirit. Um, well, one thing that comes to mind right now is via Diana Rose Harper, Mm. um, who was speaking recently about the word healing the word she used, do you remember the word that she was using in place of healing? Attending. 
attending, right, yeah. right. So she was pointing to the fact that, you know, sometimes in spirituality, we think of healing as sort of being finished, you know, or like coming to completion. But um, attending is an acknowledgement that this is something that's ongoing, you know, and mm-hmm. you're just kind of attending to it. Um, so that that is a place maybe of constriction, around that word, I had not, you know, really thought of it in that way until I saw her talk about it. But I think that's really Mm -hmm. true. I think that's definitely true of my own journey with the things that I've, you know, attempted to heal. And, And actually, this circles fully back to what we were saying in the beginning, because I have to admit that one thing that for the past few years, I've sort of told myself was healed, quote unquote, within me was my father wound. Mm. Um, that I really, I do feel like I really learned what it is to truly love yourself. And I do deeply believe that until you, until you like, when you learn what that is, you know, that you learned it, you know, Mm -hmm. and until that moment, like until I, until I can ask someone, do you love yourself? And they say definitively back, yes, then it hasn't gotten there yet, you know, and the, the truth of what that is really has not unfolded. Um, there always is a yes, but I mean, it's not to say like, yes, I love myself and everything's great. It's, it's, it's yes, yes. And yes. And I'm dealing with this. Yes. And I'm questioning this, but there's sort of a, I, I often think of it as like a lighthouse that you kind of know how to get back to it. You know, once yeah. you've kind of figured out what it is, you always, you know, when it's not there, you know, but you know how to get back to it because you know how you did it and you know how mm-hmm. it feels when you're in the right place, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as of late, I have been kind of realizing um, that that is much more ongoing and that that does take a lot more attending than maybe I realized, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And so that, that word attending does really resonate for me because it is, it is something that you have to tend to, or it, or it will kind of fade, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but healing, I mean, the word healing on its own is, is beautiful. I mean, when I think of what it means to heal, um, it takes time to heal, um, it takes acknowledgement that something needs to be healed. Sometimes mm-hmm. it takes acknowledging that you can't do it by yourself. You know, that you need, you do need to go to the doctor. You do need to, you know, see someone that can help you heal. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of doing it communally. Um, but then to heal the spirit, you know, what honestly comes to my mind is, do you know when the spirit is off you know Mm. do you have a way what are the signs for you that something is wrong with the spirit um that makes me think of something Brene brown talks about you know what are the kind of red flags or warning signs when you're in a place of shame and for me it is anger for sure Mm. if i feel myself you know kind of react being very reactive and getting angry i know something is wrong you know, yeah. and, uh, and so that makes me think of healing the spirit. You know, are you aware of what those signs are when the spirit needs to be healed? Mm-hmm. And then who do you go to? Who do you turn to? Yeah. Um, how do you heal your spirit? You know? Wow. Wow. That answer blew me away. Oh, good. <laughs> it felt like I was rambling. <laughs> no, that was so beautiful. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. Mm, I really appreciate this time together and, I'm so grateful for all the work that you do and your thoughtfulness and your willingness to be in conversation. And yeah, I'm just so grateful for this um, connection that we have. Thank you, Jonathan. I, I am truly, truly grateful to have made this connection. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
That's it for my conversation with Nick. I hope that this conversation invited you into sincere explorations and deep spirals of questioning. As always, you can find all the ways to connect with Nick in the show notes below, to book sessions with them, and to listen to their podcast, In Search of Tarot. As I mentioned briefly at the top of the episode, I was recently a guest on Nick's podcast, and it was definitely a conversation that I felt encapsulated my approach and my work with the most potency and also even maybe accuracy. I don't even know if accuracy is really the right word here, but it felt like it was so on point. And I really have to give Nick so much credit because it's not an easy task to create a space where, you know, your guests can be fully themselves and where they can truly be in this genuine exploratory mode. Um, In Search of Tarot, the podcast, which Nick co-hosts with Angie Miller, also has a Patreon community. So if you enjoy what you heard, if you love the tarot, and who doesn't, um, I hope you're not listening to this podcast without loving the tarot. (laughs) Um, And if you want to kind of be in community with other people who are interested in exploring some of these deep um, questions that I feel like maybe are not often explored with such openness in um, different learning communities, then I would highly encourage you to consider supporting Nick's work on Patreon. If you found this podcast or this conversation to be inspiring, nourishing, or helpful in some ways, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, or review this podcast with five stars or whatever is the highest ranking on your podcast app. If you think someone else will benefit from this episode, feel free to share with them too, whether that's on social media or with a friend or with your community. Until next time, I hope you take good care of yourself and I'm sending you so much love. Thank you for listening.